This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today, we will be doing one of our occasional more in-depth editions where we speak to just one person on uh, a subject. And this week, I'm really pleased to be able to talk to a man who is Vietnamese, but he lives in Australia, grew up in Australia. He is the editor. Well, is he still the editor? We'll find out in a second. But he's the publisher of uh, the Mekong Review, which is Southeast Asia's premier literary publication, uh, literary review, but uh, in the style of the New York Review of Books and the London Book Review. And um, he is Min Bui Jones. Um, Min, hello. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How how is Sydney? Sydney is really beautiful at the moment. It's late autumn, uh, beautiful cold nights and sunny days. Oh, good, good. And how is the Mekong Review doing? Well, we are swinging back into action. We've lost, of course, like everyone else, we lost uh, last year uh, due to you know what. And then this year we're slowly crawling out of our big, uh, big dark hole and starting to trade again in a big way, sending our magazine to all the places, uh, nearly all the places, apart from the US and the UK, we're back across Southeast Asia. Uh, There's been a bit of a hitch with Malaysia because of the lockdown, uh, but we're still available in Penang. The only shop is Jirak Budaya in Georgetown. And, but we're back in the swing of things in Singapore, in Hong Kong, about to get issues in Taiwan, and of course in Thailand and elsewhere too. Yeah. So Min, for today, I'd really like to find out uh, well, two things for me, which is one is the, the how and why of the Mekong Review. Why did you do this? But also I want to, I really want to, what I really find exciting about you is that you, because you, you have a, a journal which looks at Southeast Asian literature, uh, you have a you're in a unique position to be able to give us a sense of an oversight uh, into commonalities perhaps or differences across Southeast Asia and the kind of themes that people are talking about in Southeast Asia. Um, so so Min, first of all, uh, why why did you want to do a literary journal for Southeast Asia? Well, there are two reasons why the literary journal in uh, the, the, the Mekong Review came about. Firstly, is it's a print magazine. I've always loved uh, print uh, magazines. And in recent times, as you know, uh, most of the publications we uh, read these days are online. And I miss that. And so I wanted to do a print magazine. And secondly, I was living in Cambodia at the time when the idea of the Mekong Review came to me. I was living on the bank of the Mekong Review, Mekong River, I mean. <laughs> and so that, that, that came naturally in terms of a, uh, a theme, uh, the name and so on. And I've always wanted to have a magazine in which we could talk about the region in one space and discuss politics, culture, society through through books, using books as a starting point, a pretext in which we can expand to cover the whole area of culture, society and literature, of course. And so 
the Mekong Review came about is, is that. And the philosophy of the ethos of the magazine has evolved over time from those very simple reasons of the love of print and wanting to do a discursive magazine, a long-form magazine. I also started to understand why there was a... Uh, th why people really liked the magazine. I really, when I started the magazine, I didn't know whether there'd be a second issue, to be honest with you. I didn't really plan it. I didn't do a, you know, a business study of, a, of, of whether a magazine would be viable. I just did it. And then I didn't know whether people would buy it and uh, uh, would be interested in it. And of course, people did. They reacted to it really positively. And suddenly we had the second, the third, and the fourth issue and so on and so forth. And, and, and part of that has been a learning process for me, seeing how people, uh, people in Southeast Asia have been just yearning, craving, longing for a platform of their own that's not owned by a Westerner, by a foreigner, in which what they have to say you know, is filtered, uh, is uh, uh, modified, qualified for, by a Westerner for a Western audience. One is just read, uh, it's edited by uh, a fellow Asian, as it were, and, and, and curated for them. And I, I think that's been a positive thing. A lot of people have come and said that to me. And, you know, I think it's really wonderful that, you know, we have a Southeast Asian who is editing a fellow Southeast Asian writer. And it's also edited for, for us uh, yeah. as a reader. Can I just point out, though, Min, that uh, you're Australian. I am Australian. <laughs> so... <laughs> and, but, I, but, I, but, I, but my heritage is still very strong. I mean, I still feel... A uh, deep part of me is Vietnamese, and I lived, of course, for seven years in. I lived for seven years in in Cambodia, and I spent I spent a good part of my uh, working life in Thailand and also in Hong Kong and elsewhere. So I have traveled and lived in the region, and I feel that very strongly. I feel more strongly being a Southeast Asian than I feel being Australian. Put it that way. I, I would, I'm going to jump off on a tangent here uh, because I mean, I, do you sell the Mekong Review well in Australia? Yes, we do. But is there an Australian interest in these Southeast Asian voices that you have in the Mekong Review? There, there, there is an interest, but let me answer that question by saying our, our, our biggest market is in Asia, it's not in Australia. Right. And therefore, we, there, there is an interest in, in, in Southeast Asian voices in Australia because, you know, a lot of Australians live and work in Southeast Asia. They have traveled there for holiday. And so they can, they know the region reasonably well. And of course they have friends and colleagues and neighbors who are like me from that part of the world. And so it's a familiar presence for them. And you mentioned um, Asia being your biggest market. I mean, that's a big place. <laughs> are there any particular spots in Asia that um, are when are readers? and yeah. uh, stronger readers than others. Sure, Singapore and Malaysia. Oh, yeah? uh, and uh, in more recent times, Hong Kong. Right. And uh, it's called Mekong Review, and you, you started it in Cambodia. It's in English. Um, what, what about the, uh, the Mekong nations? The Mekong nations, the five countries that the Mekong 
uh, courses through um, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. In the first three years of the magazine's life, we had a stronger presence there because I was living there and I would travel to those countries and distribute the magazine and go and visit uh, Ho Chi Minh City or Bangkok or Yangon or Phnom Penh and would see people and attend uh, literary events and so on and so forth. And so as a result, we had a stronger uh, presence there. In the last three years, our presence has shifted to the island countries of Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia. And so I've, as you know, that's when I got to know you and Georgetown and all the folks in Malaysia and also Singapore. That's when I started to spend a lot more time in Singapore and Malaysia. And I started to uh, review, uh, publish a lot more reviews and articles on those countries. You know, when I first met you uh, at the Georgetown Literary Festival, um, you were then, I mean, Mekong Review has been going for, what, five years now? Um, six years. We're almost about to finish off our sixth year and entering our seventh year. But then you you were carrying huge stacks of magazines around Southeast Asia. It, it just seemed like, I don't think this is how people do things. <laughs> <laughs> they have distributors. No, don't it's they? not how this. It's not how people with money would do these things. But those without <laughs> have no choice but to do it themselves. And Mekong Review was a very modest enterprise. It still is very modest, and also it's a literary magazine. Therefore, we can't really go to a big distributor and say, "Here's a th- five hundred copies, spread it far and wide." They don't do that. Uh, our only a few shops, the indie bookshops, and some cafes would take us where they have people who would be interested in us. And so you have to you have to identify the shops and the outlets that would be interested in Mekong Review, connect with the shopkeeper, the owner, and then deliver the magazine to them. It, uh, so this this is a real labor of love. It is. This is not a sensible thing to do. Sorry? This is not a sensible thing to do. It is not a sensible thing to do. And and I would ask people not to do it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break, but um, you have done it. And so I want to find out some more about what you've learned. What do you want to find out about Southeast Asia? What you've learned about Southeast Asia? So in a moment, we're going to return with uh, Min Bui Jones here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, and Min Bui Jones, the editor and publisher of the Mekong Review, um, which is Southeast Asia's leading literary review journal. Um, Min, uh, by the way, just in case this happens, I've had to have the cat into the room now. This is a, a Zoom COVID sort of troubles now. The cat's in the room. He may make an appearance. So, uh, Min, I was saying earlier that, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier about um, Australia not being part of Southeast Asia. You, you, you're in a position where you've, you've visited all these countries. You speak to uh, authors from around the region. You must have an insight into the commonalities and the differences within Southeast Asia. Is there a common thread in Southeast Asia? Is there a and Asia? I think there is. I think there is definitely 
uh, a Southeast Asia, even though you know it's a it's a a construct, a Western construct. I think we're starting to get used to it, and I think what has been um, a pleasant surprise for me uh, traveling uh, to other countries, to most of the countries in the region over the last six or seven years or more, has been this recognition that there are countries around us, say if you were in Vietnam, you start to see Cambodia or Thailand, not as a political entity, but more as a cultural and social entity. I think that, you know, the idea of Southeast Asia has been really defined by the Pacific War, by the, the Vietnam War, and so on. And I think the dust has finally settled on that period, on that history. And the, the young Southeast Asians are starting to discover Southeast, uh, you know, Cambodian films, uh, Vietnamese architecture, uh, Malaysian music or, or, or something else that they you know. It, and it's not political, it's cultural, it's social. And they, young filmmakers, are meeting each other in Bangkok or in Luang Prabang or in Georgetown, and musicians and and artists and writers too. And they're not they're not meeting each other as, you know, as as politicians or as uh, heads of departments and so on. They are meeting each other as artists, as writers, and so they're discovering each other in a in a in a non-political way, which I think has been a, a something new. When I was living in Cambodia, it struck me that, you know, hardly any Cambodians were, there, there wasn't a book on Vietnam. They, these countries uh, next to each other, they shared a torrid history, a tumultuous history of invading each other and fighting and hating each other. And there's not one book on Vietnam written in, in, in recent times, written by a Cambodian. And, you know, it crossed the border into, into Vietnam. And it's almost the same, there are a few more books. And I was astounded one day when I came across a little book written by a Vietnamese artist who spent six months in, Cam in Cambodia, mainly in Phnom Penh. And he wrote about his trip there. And he was writing about Cambodia as if he just discovered it for the first time. And it's just three hours across the border <laughs> from Ho Chi Minh City to Phnom Penh. And for him, it was like something new, an exotic landscape, a foreign land. And that really struck me as something quite weird, unusual, unique about these countries. They, they're so close to each other and yet they are so alien to each other. And slowly they are starting to discover each other in a healthier way. Well, I'm really glad you said that, actually, because I've always felt how strange it is that Malaysia and Thailand share a border, mm. and yet two countries could not be more culturally, not so much different, but kind of like a bit disinterested in each other. Um, you know, it, almost any Malaysian, really, from top to bottom of society, would feel a more of a sense of, oh, somehow we've been here before if they were in London than, than if they were in some uh, provincial part of Thailand. Mm, that's, and I, I, I discovered too that I didn't know there was a relationship between um, 
Singaporeans and Vietnamese. Uh, there were times when I was in Ho Chi Minh City when I came across so many Singaporeans who were uh, popping over there for a for, for a weekend because of the cheap flights, and that was really unusual. They were there in quite in large numbers on a certain certain time of the year, and 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 also I also found the same too. A lot of Malaysians in Phnom Penh at certain times of the year. That was uh, that was something new for me. Um, there, so all these things are happening. And I think they mostly have been facilitated by these uh, by Air Asia and Jetstar. Yeah. yeah. So can I ask then the, 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 um, the issues and the, the stories that people are telling in these different countries, uh, what, what kind of... Uh, are there common threads that people are wanting to discuss, or again, are, are they different? Uh, what, what what kind of stories are people talking about in Southeast Asia? Well, I spend a lot of time with um, mainly with writers, so they're not exactly the most numerous group of people in these countries. So, uh, but I do know for I think what I've come across that is common in a lot of the countries I visited is there's a, a very different demographic uh, emerging in the region. Uh, people in their early 20s, even in their late teens, who are conversant in English, they're reading English magazines and books and and they're different. Their their expectations are different. They're different from their parents. Uh, for instance, they want more than just getting a job, building uh, a home, and 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 establishing a business. They identify themselves more with their teenage peers, virtual peers that they see on the internet, in films, in popular culture. And they want something much more. They want what their friends in, or what their peers in the UK, in Canada, in Australia have. They want the freedom to dress as they like, read whatever they want to read, or see what they what they want to see, and so on and so forth. It's a it's a different desire. It's a strong yearning to be um, to be part of that group that of that bigger uh, global group they have global <laughs> dreams so to speak they the, for, for them it's not wanting just to you know they want to travel they desperately want to travel and see the world much more than their parents did their parents of course didn't have uh, the, the wherewithal or the, the the peace of mind to think about traveling and seeing the world and of course that means that a lot of these countries have uh, the, the, a lot of these children are from the middle class, the emerging middle classes in, in these countries. And so they, they, they have the knowledge, they have the, the time and the money to think about all these things that we in the West uh, take for granted. And that I've, I've noticed has been more prevalent every time I, I go to Vietnam, I go to Cambodia, go to Thailand. I mean, there was a time when you go to uh, Cambodia where you struggle to find someone that you can 
say a few words in English to you know, purchase a pack of cigarettes or get a beer or get a tuk-tuk ride. But these days, even in the very you know, back street of nowhere, you, you'll find someone who can understand you uh, in English and converse with you just enough to do a, a, a polite exchange. Well, that is remarkable. That's totally remarkable. Yeah, uh, no, no, absolutely. But, but that is one of the, the things with... It, no, language is... Uh, is um, a very important factor. Mekong Review is in English. It, it, it is written in English. It is for an English reading audience. It's, uh, so it's kind of a self-selecting uh, audience. You can't obviously know everything. You can't obviously tell everything. But the, the, the languages, you, you speak Vietnamese language. There are stories within the language that, that cannot... Uh, translate or travel probably if you're saying if there's english and then there's the the the, the vernacular language are there different stories within within those no, two? totally they're, they're very different stories and we can only you know languages are not parallel journeys uh, you have to approximate them and so the stories in vietnam are very different for instance or the stories in cambodia and in myanmar are very different what we can only try to do is to get as close as we can to the to to the to the picture, to, to the reality, to the truth, as it were. And so that is the art of writing, getting closer to the truth. And we try to approximate you know, as much as possible. And part of what we do in that process is getting local writers, Vietnamese or Cambodians, to write about their experience. So, you know, they are the person who's doing the translation rather than getting a foreigner to translate that that reality for you yeah several years ago an italian publisher came to kl to to malaysia looking to he wanted to find a book to translate into italian that would be about malaysia and he um he said a very interesting thing uh, which surprised me was that all the books that he'd read were set somewhere else in malaysia they were all set somewhere else that there was a lot of science fiction which is obviously set somewhere else some in different times um he couldn't find anybody who had written a book who, or who wanted to write a Malaysian book set in Malaysia, and including my own, actually. Um, and I thought, that's really weird. But because he'd read so many, he was able to give me uh, an insight into the totality. And, and I, I thought, yeah, I suppose actually you know, Malaysians want to be somewhere else, maybe. Um, I mean, have you found, have you found going, going across Southeast Asia similar kind of uh, general themes within a country? Yes, that's the case. But there are different reasons for, for, for doing that. So much of art is affected by the material reality, the physical world we live in. And for instance, in Vietnam, obviously, because of the one-party state and insanely draconian laws on what you can say and do. A lot of people, obviously, for self-preservation reasons, tend to write, you know, uh, surreal stuff, um, magical realism, for instance. Nguyen Binh Phuong, one of the best writers in Vietnamese fiction at the moment, writes, uh, you know, magical realist fiction and I also think for instance when I first 
discover Singaporean literature, I was really surprised by how many poets there were. There was such a huge supply of uh, of, of poets in in Singapore. It's unusual, and I and I over the years I started to understand why a lot of writers in in Singapore were holding full time jobs, and in poems were just the, the the only form that they could do in in that ten minute break they had or whatever. And also, you know, poetry was non-political, mostly. And so in, in a place like Singapore, of course, that's, that's, that's an important factor. And, and also this, the same too in Cambodia was interesting too, that people really didn't express themselves through the written word as much as say in Vietnam and in Myanmar, they, they express themselves through the visual arts, through um, the, the architecture, through music and, and dance, and not a lot of uh, literary fiction in Cambodia at all. And I don't know why that is the case, um, but that's that, that was just the, the, the way things were when I was living there. I don't think that has changed at all. And so, and yes, there, there are these peculiarities, and I think it's affected, and it's it, and it's it's a product of the physical world they live in, or the political reality that they have to deal with, and all sometimes to do with the the the, the literary heritage of of the country. Vietnam, for instance, the country I know a lot more than the other countries, has a long literary tradition. It's always been an important part of its culture, of its history, inherited, of course, from, from, from China. And, 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 and literature has been, you know, the, the ultimate expression of ideas, of thoughts. It's the ultimate, you know, this is the final word on a subject. Yeah. So uh, in in uh, Malaysia uh, well, and, and Vietnam, for that matter, Malaysia obviously we had a a, a a British period, and Vietnam had the French period. So mm. you had these new uh, literary, new cultural, uh, very strong cultural forces arriving, uh, and then presumably depositing um, something long lasting inside oh. these these cultures. And in a way, do, do, does the fact that France was over there, Britain was here, are they are they separating forces as well? Do, do they do they make culture different? They do, they do in a big way. And of course, the the, the format just to use Vietnam as an example, the birth of the modern Vietnamese novel couldn't happen without France. In fact, the language couldn't happen without France. Vietnamese, you know. Was a uh, was a, a, a Chinese derived country, society, culture, and the, the French, when they came, gave us our Romanized language, which we still use today. And it was a popular language because the Chinese genome, uh, the the Vietnamese version of the Mandarin, was very much for the Mandarin elite, for the very few. And when the French priest 
created the, the modern Vietnamese language, Romanized it, he really popularized it. A lot more people could read and it was easy to print. And it was just, and it just, it, and it is what it is today. And then of course, with that, you know, came the, the, the when the French colonized the country, they established a lot of schools and, and, uh, and of course the children of the, the wealthy and the well-to-do went to these schools, picked up on French literature, and they were hugely affected by that. And the, the birth of modern Vietnamese novel took place in the 1920s when you have all these kind of, for the first time, the idea of, you know, because Vietnamese novels before, like a lot of, you know, ancient books, they were, they were, you know, they were books that had, a, they were fables, you know, stories with a moral, with a, with a, with, with, with a, with a, with a, with a, um, with a sort of a very didactic ending. Whereas the French, they suddenly the Vietnamese writers were, were, were doing reportage for the first time, first person narrative, and also the idea of discovering your consciousness, discovering the world, knowing that you uh, in the East and over there was the worst. It was a radical thing. And a lot of young writers like Nhat Lin would go to one of the, the foremost modern writers in Vietnam would go to France and he wrote a book called Go West. And in which for him, it was about him being an Asian, immersing himself in the West, trying to find a way which he could liberate his country from their tradition and, and and the chains of traditions and so on and so forth, and 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 you know the French had such a you know profound influence on Vietnamese literature, in the same way as they also had the profound influence on Vietnamese uh, painting. You know, Vietnamese painting wouldn't exist today without the French influence. Does that then make um, Vietnamese and Malaysians? Unable to understand each other, that the fact I mean, the, if if the French uh, cultural I don't know influences or prejudices that sort of implanted themselves in Vietnamese soil, or even American for that matter, I don't know. Um, can 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 people see each other? Because once upon a time, you know, people were trading before the French and the British ever turned up, yeah. trading, sailing the seas, finding a language to be able to trade. You know your elephants for your pottery, um, and I and and now I wonder, can, can Malaysians and Vietnamese really be eye to eye? I think on some levels they can be, especially in terms of their shared history, being colonized by the West. I think that's very powerful mm. that link. Mm. And also in the term, in, in, in I think also in the physicality of our existence, in that weather, in the food that we share, fruit especially, and some vegetables. And I think they're very powerful images and connections. But in terms of cultural and political understanding, I think we're very divergent. Vietnamese are more interested in more concern about freedom of movement. I don't think you guys have that concern. Well, you might have it now during the lockdown, 
But mm. you know, no ordinarily you wouldn't have uh, trouble getting a visa to go overseas. But right. it's a big deal for most Vietnamese. Right. That's not an easy thing to do. This is a brand new world for them to be able to leave their country to go even to Malaysia. It's a big deal and it's a new thing. Whereas mm. I think that freedom has been with Malaysians for a long time. Yeah. If yeah. not forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, the, the time has flown by, men. <laughs> coming to an end. But can I end then by asking you, um, so in your last six years, you, you've come across a lot of writers and a lot of books. And uh, and uh, I, I, in fact, have actually contributed a piece to uh, Mekong Review. You have, and, and I think and, you're due to uh, send in another one. Okay, well, <laughs> what are deadlines? Eh? <laughs> just, a, just a concept. Can you suggest any authors um, or works that have come up over the years that you that have really struck you and, and think that Malaysians should um, take a look at? Oh, you got me there. <laughs> this year, um, I've been struck by a young Cambodian-American writer called... Anthony Vesno, and he has a new book out called After Parties. And sadly, Anthony died early this year at the tender age of you know, 26 or 28 or something. Mm. And it was, it's his first book. And it's a, you know, these are short stories of his live as a young Cambodian-American growing up in California and trying to tiptoe his way through the terrain there with his bicultural identity. He was also gay, and so there was an added layer to his identity. And these are gorgeously poignant stories. They are just utterly beautiful. And it's really sad, it's heartbreaking that he's he died before his debut book, and, you know, it's been, we've all been waiting for this book for so long. And it's been, it's finally arrived and he's no longer with us. And so he's wonderful. Mm. I beg everyone to go and discover him. Uh, Anthony who? Sorry? Anthony Vesnoso. Vesnoso. Okay. So we end on that tragic note. And also our recommendation is the Mekong Review, how, tell our listeners, how, how does one subscribe or read online? Well, you can subscribe uh, at our website, MekongReview.com. And we hope to resume uh, selling the magazine uh, to our, uh, in all our um, outlets in Malaysia soon. At the moment, it's only available in Jirak Budaya in Penang. Normally, it's available in Kino, Kanaya, and elsewhere. But at the moment, it's a bit complicated getting the magazine to Malaysia. Mm. Well, I, I recommend it, folks. It's um, it's it's a great read, and it's uh, well, it's unique. It's an absolutely unique um, publication. Thanks. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I I will endeavour to. Right. Yes. I, I don't point your finger at me. I'll, <laughs> it'll happen when it happens. So, uh, well, it only remains for me now to thank uh, Min Bui Jones. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, good luck with continuing the Mekong Review. And myself, Cam Ruslan. And so please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.